Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. very fun. Last week we talked about the cheery subject of how we move on after we sin. Never fun to talk about. And this week we talk about how we move on after loss. Onward after loss. And to learn how to move on after loss, we are actually going to look at another story about King David and how David moved onward after loss. It was I was actually texting with Jana and Jackie. Jackie writes all of our kids' lesson plans and everything, and she, she does so off of what we're talking about he, here in Big Kids Church. You're all big kids, right? But she does so, and she does that intentionally. So parents, if your kids are in kids' church right now, we do this intentionally because what we want to foster here is discipling conversations that you can have with your children. So we want, on your car ride home, you to ask your kids, what did you talk about in kids' church today? And they'd be able to tell you what we talked about, how we move onward after loss. You say, oh, that's interesting, that's what we talked about. And you have those conversations that come up on your car ride home, at the dinner table tonight, whatever it is. But as we were talking about it, Jackie said, man, that sermon, that's so good. And I texted back, this is kind of a weird thing about me, but I love talking about suffering. Isn't that weird? I've told you guys this before, but, you know, when I got ordained, uh, they have made these little packets of all of the ordination candidates, and it had everybody's favorite Bible verses in there, and everybody's, you know, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, and like all that stuff, the really the nice things that are in Hallmark greeting cards and all that stuff. And then Jeremy comes up, and you get to his, and it's Job thirteen fifteen. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. It's kind of like, oh, who's this guy? This is the dark one, right? But here's the thing, I, you know, as I've been thinking about this, it's like, why do I like talking about suffering so much? But I think it's because, you know, C.S. Lewis has this really great quote, and I'm not going to be able to remember it, but he talks about how God speaks to us through the good things in our lives, right? But he screams to us through our suffering. Suffering is something that Christians today, especially Christians in the Western world, don't lean into nearly enough. We find every way, and, and ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to apologize for this, but from the pulpit, we preach every way to get out of suffering. God's going to deliver you. He's going to get you through. He's going to get you out. That we don't focus on what do we need to learn inside of the fire. What do I need to learn inside of the flood? And that's why I love talking about suffering so much. Because, look, nobody likes to suffer, right? I don't like to suffer. But, Christian, if you lean into Jesus through your loss and through your suffering, he will grow you exponentially. And I'm sorry, you know, I, I would love to think that God can come down from heaven and say, hey, Jeremy, I really need you to be a good boy and do these three things for me. And that I would be like, yes, sir and I would go and do those three things. But the majority of the time, God's got to get my attention. And when God has asked me to do things, the road that he tends to lead me down is one marked with loss and suffering because when he speaks to me normally, I've got a pretty thick skull, and it just doesn't penetrate sometimes. And so he sends these hurricanes. He cuts off people from our lives. He removes things. He, you know, Jesus says he prunes us, right? And he does so, so that we can grow. It's really difficult because when God's cutting things off of you, it doesn't feel like growth, right? It feels like pain. It's like, Lord, what the heck are you doing? But Jesus promises in John 15 that when God prunes us, he does so to grow us. 
fact of the matter is, our culture right now is worse than any other culture throughout mankind's history at facing pain and suffering. We just don't know how to do it because we don't know how to suffer well. So we've got to learn, right? We have to learn. And to do so, we don't learn from the world, right? Unfortunately, y'all, listen, this is where Christians are turning today. The reason we are so awful at dealing with suffering is because we're applying the world's tactics. Well, what does modern psychology say? What does, you know, all that stuff. And look, I'm not saying modern psychology is bad, but I'm saying if modern psychology trumps the gospel, that's wrong, Christian. So to know how to deal with suffering and loss We've got to turn to God's way. And David teaches us how to do so. We see David pray. We see David grieve. And we see David focus in this story that we read today. So those are the three things that we need to talk about. First, we pray. And this is more than just prayer. It's not bowing your head and folding your hands and saying words to God. It is more about a posture, more about a position that we place ourselves in. So in this story that we just read, what is the first thing that David does? And the interesting thing is that David does it not necessarily when the grief hits, but when the potential for grief hits, right? He prays. When David faces the prospect of grief, the prospect of loss, he turns to God and he begs God to move. It says, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. Now look, David very easily could have said, Forget it. I'm mad at God. God, how could you do this to my child? This is on you. I was the one who screwed up. Put it on me. Right? You guys remember from last week, David and Bathsheba. That's Uriah's widow, Bathsheba. David messed up. Put that on me, not my child. And he could have thrown his head, hands up and said, forget it. I'm done. David could have said, this is all my fault. And he could have turned away from God and hid in his shame. But he didn't. David drew close to God and he begged him to change his mind. And again, this wasn't just prayer. Too many times, don't crucify me right away. Don't pick up your stones and start throwing them. Too many times I think Christians make too big a deal of prayer. Let me explain. What David does here is not just recite some words to God, right? And, and, and you know, we do the same thing with fasting. He doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to give up social media so that God does what I want. That's not what he does, right? David's prayer is a posture of his life. And Christian, we're reading through the cheery book of Jeremiah in our Bible in a Year plan right now. We just got done with Isaiah. We're in that like bog down mode in the Bible in a Year where it's just like, like beat you down, beat you down, beat you down. But here's the thing, guys, recurring theme in God's word that God says over and over again to the Israelites, you can pray and fast all you want. If you're not going to do what I say and listen to me, if your heart's in the wrong place, I'm not going to listen to a word you have to say. That's what God says. You don't hear that preached very often, do you? There's a reason those Old Testament prophets weren't very popular. There's no such, can I just, just, just put this out there? There is no such thing as a popular prophet, y'all. If y'all are following popular prophets on social media and YouTube and all that stuff, find me a popular prophet in the Bible and I will believe them. I don't buy it. Because over and over again, this is what God says. 
give me your heart, not your empty words, not your empty fasting, but give me your heart, and then I'll start to work. God is not nearly as concerned with our prayers as he is with our position. And David, in this story, is in the perfect position to watch God move. We talked about this last week, right? David wrote Psalm 51, and he showed us the position of his heart. What does God desire? A broken and contrite heart. A broken spirit God will never turn away from. And so David is approaching God. He spends all night in this position, absolutely broken, praying and fasting and doing everything in his power. Not, now listen, here's where, this, this is where it gets tricky. Not so God answers his prayer, okay? But so he can draw close to God. That's where we get confused, because what happens at the end of this story? It's not a, not a very nice ending, right? The child dies. So, so let me paint this picture for you. David does everything right, and God's answer is still no. There's a really interesting place in the Bible where Jesus finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, more so than David, did everything right. Everything from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, obeyed God perfectly, was in the best position any of us could ever be in, and God's answer was still no. But that's because we don't position ourselves to twist God's arm. Christian, we do not position ourselves to twist God's arm into giving us what we want. We position ourselves for God, right? That's what the whole gifted sermon series was about. You guys remember that? It's not about the gifts. It's about the giver. It's not about the healing. It's about the healer. I mean, we can write songs about it. Plenty of people have done, but we've got to live it. Now look, this doesn't keep David from asking for the miracle, right? Because that's the other, the other place we can go here. Is, is saying, actually, Jana and I walked through this. Uh, some of you guys know our backstory a little bit, but when Jana and I first got married and we tried to, tried to have kids, we really struggled. She struggled to get pregnant at first, and then when we finally did get pregnant, we felt like that was a fulfillment of God's word to us, that he said, you will, you will become pregnant. Uh, and so she did get pregnant, so yeah, praise God, and then had a miscarriage. And it was absolutely crushing. Because it's, it's a, a miscarriage is crushing. I mean, losing a child born or, or you know not born yet it's it's devastating but to have add on top of that that we felt so surely that God said this will happen and then to have it end like that was like what the heck and that's the other place where we can go here that's not good we can go to the side of what the what's the point in praying and and I can tell you for a fact that conversation was had under the Metzger roof many times after that, we went through a very, very dark season. What is the point in praying? God's going to do whatever the heck he wants anyway. So why, why even pray? What's the point? But that's because, ladies and gentlemen, prayer is not to get stuff, right? And, and, and here's the funny thing. <laughs> this is so hard, and I, I apologize to anybody who's actually suffering because this is awful for you. <laughs> For me to sit up here and give you advice because in suffering you don't want advice right but the funny thing is if we can step out of it which you can't but if you can step out of it and when you can look back you can see like yes that's that's right yes prayer is about drawing close to god not getting stuff from god 
The problem is when those waves hit wave after wave after wave after wave, it doesn't give you time to step back, right? You can barely keep your head above the water and another wave hits. That's what happens with grief. But we've got to draw close to God because when we do, when we draw close to God, when we position ourselves to draw close to him, not for answers to prayer, but just for him, we find a God who wants to walk with us through our suffering. But in order for him to do that, Christian, you must be willing to grieve. You've got to be strong enough to admit you are suffering. There is this really dangerous trend going around in Christianity today. I don't know if it's a cultural thing or, or what it is. It's, again, it's, it's that old Martin Luther analogy. You know, Satan doesn't care what side of the horse you fall off on just as long as you don't stay in the saddle. We find ourselves in our culture doing one of two very dangerous things. We either pretend we don't grieve at all, right? Well, I'm a Christian. My home's in heaven. I don't have any grief. Yeah, I, I'm so far above the grief. But the problem is when you don't grieve, you can't find a God who walks with you through your grief. And you miss. But then the other side of that is sometimes we can grieve so much to the point where we get lost in it. We allow the emotions to take over and it pulls us down. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've never experienced this, please don't. But when emotions pull you down, they are a fickle master, and it is very hard to get them to let you come back up. So we've got to find the middle ground. We start by looking at David. David grieved. The, the child that he is praying for is actually still alive at this point. But David has already begun the grieving process. The word tells us the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. David is so torn by grief that he's just lying on the ground. He won't eat. He won't move. He won't sleep. He's just lying there, broken. So David prays, fasts and grieves. And David's grief process looks different, right? Because many people, you know, you're not going to grieve until the battle's been lost. David hasn't hit the loss yet, but he's still grieving. God, through the prophet Nathan, has said this child is going to die, and David knows what the outcome's going to be. And so he's grieving, but this actually teaches us something about grief. Most of us know this. You cannot plan for grief. And no one's grief is the same. Everyone is different. I think this is part of what our culture hates so much about grief. Because we're ultra leaders, right? In our Western culture, everybody's called to be a leader. And so we have a plan and a process, and I'm going to put my process in place, and it's going to get me through. Guys, there is no process for grief. The thing is, we know this psychologically, right? Psychiatrists everywhere will talk to you about the five stages of grief, right? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance. But ladies and gentlemen, every single person who talks to you about the five stages of grief will tell you the same thing. Not everybody goes through all five. Some people go through more than five. They go through other stages that aren't listed here. And you can't plan. It's not, okay, two weeks through this one, two weeks through this one, two weeks through this one. Why aren't you progressing? But that's the problem that we have. Has anybody ever walked with grief with someone like that? Get over it. Come on, you should at least be to denial right now. What was denial for the person? Denial is the person, not denial. You should at least be to anger right now. Why are you still denying things? Get on to anger. Let's get this thing going. Come on, right? It's that American dream mentality. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Good luck. And anyone who has really walked through suffering, you know this. You know it. There is no pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. 
You're not supposed to. That's not how you were made. Unfortunately, with as in tune as we are culturally today with our mental and emotional health, we are still notoriously bad at grieving and even worse at walking with others through grief. But one thing that everyone will agree on is that you must grieve in order to move on. There is no onward without grief. So we must learn to grieve, and we must learn how to grieve well. But there's one other thing that we have to focus on. This actually wasn't in our, our reading for today. But every once in a while, we get so wrapped up in our own grief that we forget that our loss doesn't only impact us. When you look at David, David did not forget that though he was walking through loss, he wasn't the only one walking through loss. Because look at what he does. It says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and they went into her and lay and he went into her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Pretty incredible what happens here on two fronts. Number one, that she gives birth to Solomon. We all know who Solomon is. King Solomon takes the throne after David. So from this broken, adulterous relationship, the line of Jesus Christ comes. That's who Jesus chooses to be in his lineage. Come on, somebody, that'll preach. That's powerful, right? But even more so, in the midst of loss, in the midst of loss, God comes in and gives him this chosen heir. And that's what that name Jedediah means, chosen of the Lord, loved of the Lord. And so God is saying through the prophet Nathan, David, this is over. This is my beloved child. Don't think that the loss was because I don't love you. Right? And we need that reassurance. But something else, I want I want to dive into something. Little children earmuffs cover your ears. But I want to talk about something here. So I've had a lot of conversations, usually joking, you know, we're laughing, ha ha ha, making little Christian jokes. But where we talk about this and oh look at David. <laughs> Guys only have one thing on their mind, right? In the middle of grief, everybody's torn up here, and David just wants to get in bed with his wife. But ladies and gentlemen, that's just how far our culture has polluted sex. And I want to encourage you, married couples, I want to encourage you to get back to viewing sex as what God made it to be. Because sex is a covenant renewal ceremony. Every single time. A reminder of the covenant that you made when you were married. Guys, this is why, and I'm going to get on my soapbox and pound here. This is why, listen, Christian, you want to enforce sexual morality? You better do all of it. If you want to sit here and harp on homosexuality and harp on all this other stuff, then you better walk it back and go all the way back. Because, ladies and gentlemen, heterosexual sex outside of marriage is just as bad as homosexual sex outside of marriage. It's the same thing. Well, there's degrees to which God... Sin is sin. It all separates you from God. So look... You want to you bicker back and forth about whether you're separated 100 yards or 60 miles? It's separate from God, right? And if you're going to get on, and I'm not, listen, this isn't saying like homosexuality, good. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is church, the church has lost the argument. When you want to argue about homosexual marriage and all of that stuff, well, it's, it's against the sanctity of marriage. Forget that. You lost that fight when we stopped fighting for sex outside of marriage. Or against sex, sorry, not force. Against sex outside of marriage. You lost it. When you want to talk about the sanctity of marriage, then talk about all of the sanctity of marriage. 
You get me? Because here is the thing. Sex is the most powerful thing when used in the right context. Because for as much as we want to joke about, oh, David, he's only got one thing on his mind. No, he's comforting his wife. And he's doing so by being intimate with her. By being closer than anyone else can be with her. Because she's his wife. God has given us in marriage the gift of sex. And we can use that on so many different levels. Husbands and wives, you just had a knockdown, drag out fight. Renew the covenant. You're upset, you're broken, you're mourning something. Use the covenant renewal. Renew that covenant. But we've let our world twist this into something it's not. The only thing it's for is pleasure. And that's not the case. God gave it to us as a gift to procreate. Number one, that's the purpose, right? That's why abortion is so goofy, because you're absolutely cutting the purpose off of why it was made in the first place. But beyond the procreating, as intimacy that draws the two of you together unlike anything else. Christian, inside of marriage, use that to make your marriage stronger. Christian, who is not married yet, don't you dare use that yet. Don't you dare. Because every time you do, you will cheapen the intimacy to come in your marriage. God can restore all things. If you've already made that mistake, he restores all things. But don't cheapen it now. Start over today and save it. Back to David, though. Because David, the main point here, it would be very easy for David, and as, as our culture, we are very individualistic, right? We are very self-centered, and it would be very easy for David to say, hey, hey, I'm hurting here. This is my loss. Look, Bathsheba, I know you want to talk about this stuff, but I don't want to talk about it, okay? This is my suffering. So I'm going to go suffer over here. You just go suffer over there. But he doesn't, does he? He recognizes, you know what? My wife is hurting too. And so I've got to comfort her. My job as a husband is to comfort her, is to take care of her, is to walk with her through this suffering. So don't miss the people around you who are also grieving through your situation. They need you to walk with them. And here's the other thing. You need them to walk with because it eases that burden. It gives you somebody to carry it with you. And believe it or not, grief is holy. If it wasn't, then why did we read this? John eleven thirty five. 35, you Bible quizzers, you all know. John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, right? If you didn't know, there you go. Put that little quill in your cap. Now you know. The more you know, right? But it is the shortest verse in the Bible, but it is also possibly the most powerful. Jesus wept. And this is so incredible to me. To give a little context on what's going on in this verse, Jesus' good friend Lazarus has just died. And so Jesus goes to Lazarus's home, Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, they're both grieving. So Jesus comes in, he preaches them a sermon on grief, and then he takes off. No, he doesn't do that, right? Jesus tells them, Mary, Martha, chill out. I'm going to raise your brother. It's all good. Just stop crying, okay? He doesn't do that either. He responds to Mary and Martha, and he actually responds to each one completely different because their grief isn't the same, and their process of grieving is not the same. 
So he responds different to each one. But Jesus also grieves with them. It's not that he just comes alongside and puts his shoulder around them and says, it's okay, guys. He weeps, right? This is the part that I find so interesting because Jesus knew what was going to happen, right? If you go back and read this story, word comes to Jesus before he reaches the town of Bethany that his friend Lazarus is sick. And the disciples say, well, well let's, let's get over there so that we can, we can heal him. And Jesus says, no, 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 guys. He's dying. He's, he's going to die. This is it. He knows he's going to die. But he also knows that he's going to resurrect him from the dead. Jesus knows how this story is going to end. So why does he weep? If Jesus knows he's bringing Lazarus back, there's no reason to cry, right? But I think there's two reasons for this. First of all, I think that Jesus is legitimately grieving. Jesus never ran from grief. He was never too holy to grieve, right? Right, the people who run from grief, well, God's going to heal all things, so I don't need to grieve. Tell that to Jesus, because he's here weeping. In fact, Isaiah 53, one of the greatest prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, tells us very specifically that Jesus was born to be, right? This is who Jesus was born to be. It says that he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. It's like the soggy bottom boys. You guys remember that song? I am a man of constant sorrows. I am a man of constant sorrows. You guys remember that? It's popular a while ago. Maybe not anymore. But Jesus literally was a man of constant sorrows. And when you think about it, wouldn't you be? Jesus is God. He was with God in the beginning. He created all of this. And every single day, Jesus walks this earth and watches the failure that creation has become. Every single day, Jesus knows, Jesus knows what we were supposed to be, who we were made to be. And every day, he sees men spit in their creator's face, his father, deny him with their lifestyle, do everything they can to turn away. And then when Jesus shows up on the scene and says, look, y'all, you've separated yourself from God, but I can bring you back. His own people say, this guy's nuts. Get out of here. Jesus can see the sin and brokenness in every single one of us. How far we've fallen from who we were supposed to be. And the fact that our pride still won't let us turn back to him to be made whole. Wouldn't that eat you up? Wouldn't that break your heart? I mean, for those of you who are Christians, you know this anyway. Because you have friends or family who are, who are far away from the faith. And you know how that tears you apart. To say, if you would just turn to Jesus, you don't need to do anything else. Just start walking with him. You don't need to clean up beforehand. Just start with him. We have the words of life, right? Because Jesus has given us the words of life. We know where to point people. But yet you point and you point and you point and they still don't turn. Now imagine that you're the son of God and every single person you see, that's the interaction that you have with them. It would tear you up. Jesus, a man of sorrows, familiar with grief. But the second part of this, Jesus is grieving, but I think Jesus is also responding to the grief around him like David responded to his wife Jesus sees those grieving around him because Jesus was a man of sorrows and familiar with grief Jesus knew how to respond to the grief around him 
and he did so by weeping. He did not let his grief fester on its own. He didn't keep it to himself. He didn't say, I'm suffering here. He said, I'm going to use my grief to respond to others. Uh, Pastor Chuck Swindle, he tells a story uh, in, in one of his books about this little girl. It's a super powerful story. But there's a little girl and one of her friends has died in her class. Uh, you know, she's a little elementary age kid. And, and one day she tells her parents that she would like to go over to her friend's house and see their parents. And so she goes over to the friend's house and, the, you know, comes out later. And the dad asks her, like, well, what, what did you say to, to her mother? Like, what do you say to a mother who's just lost their child? What did you say? And the daughter says, nothing. I just climbed up in her lap and I just cried with her. Isn't that beautiful? If you've never really lost, if you've never really grieved, you'll miss the beauty in that story. People grieving don't want a sermon. They don't want a Hallmark card with all the best Bible verses in it. They don't want somebody who's going to sit there and tell them exactly what they need to do to get better. They want someone who is going to weep with those who weep. Jesus was familiar with grief. So he responded to those grieving around him by weeping. You see how beautiful that is? This is the God of the universe. The Lord over all of creation who weeps with you in the midst of your grief. If you're strong enough to admit to him that you grieve. Which leads us to our last point. This, my dear friends, is why our culture is so bad, so poorly equipped to walk through pain and suffering and loss. Because our, fo or our, our loss, our grieving, it has no focus. And in order for you to suffer well so that Christ is glorified, you must have focus to your grief. Because here's the thing. Our culture knows how to grieve, right? Like we said, mental and emotional health are a very trendy topic these days. Everyone's got their finger on that pulse. Maybe a little too much sometimes. Seems to be that's all we hear about, right? Mental and emotional health. Are you mentally healthy? Are you emotionally healthy? Right? Over and over again. But our problem with that process, the secular process, is that grief is the focus. So we're told over and over again, you have to grieve to be healthy, right? If you don't grieve, you can't health, healthily move on from this process. And so we grieve so that we can grieve. And when grief is the focus of your grief, you can imagine that creates quite the vortex. And it sucks you down into it. You will never properly move on from grief if grief is your anchor. Or maybe you're not grieving for grief's sake. Maybe you're grieving because that's what you're told. You have to grieve to move on, and I want to move on, so I'm going to grieve. But, but do you see that your anchor is still in moving on? Right? Or you grieve so that you can be the best version of yourself for your family. Your anchor is in the best version of yourself, or your anchor is in your family. You grieve so you can be mentally and spiritually and emotionally healthy. Your grief is in your mental and spiritual and emotional health. And you get stuck. And you will always get stuck. Because those are all poor anchors. Look, you guys, boating analogy, right? That's what the whole anchor thing is, the boating analogy. If you're in the middle of a storm and you throw your anchor into the storm, right? Imagine anchors can like float away up into storms. I don't know. It's not going to do you any good, right? 
It's going to pull you everywhere with the storm. When you drop your anchor in the middle of a storm, you drop it to the bottom of the seafloor, right? Because when it's down there, that storm's going to beat against your ship, but it's not going to blow you anywhere. You're going to stay where your anchor's rooted to. Or if you keep your anchor in your boat, I'm going to put my anchor in myself, which is what our culture does today. That's our favorite place to put our anchor. So we put our anchor in ourselves. And if you keep that anchor in your boat, does it anchor you through the storm? It doesn't, right? That storm still blows you wherever it wants because the anchor isn't outside the boat. You've got to drop your anchor outside the boat. And that's exactly what David does. It's a peculiar way to phrase it. But it says this. This is after David is questioned by his servants. They, they, there's this weird thing going on where you know, his servants ask him, like, boy, David, you got over this whole thing really fast. Like you're sitting here grieving for this child while he's still alive, and now the child's dead, and you're like, oh, okay, on with it. And here's the thing. I do want to put out a little advertisement for David. Grief looks different for everyone. You can never, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please, you can never judge someone else's grief. Uh, I, I have a, a friend of mine who, you know, they walked through a miscarriage and they, they had been a couple of years removed from the situation. And the husband made the brutal mistake of saying to the wife when they were having a conversation years down the road about how she was still feeling this loss. And the husband said to her, you really need to get over it. And the damage that was done in that relationship. Mm, Guys, please don't try to judge someone else's grief. Even if it seems like to you it's something that, well, that's not that big a deal. It's still grief. It's still loss. Let it be loss, right? Weep with them. But don't try to judge someone else's grief because while on the outside it looks like David is, oh, done with this loss, on to the next one. I've already got 75 kids. What's, what's the loss of one, right? While that's what it looks like, David's doing, I am certain, and anybody who has ever lost, especially if you've ever lost a child, you know that there is no getting over that. There's no moving on. And so while it looks like David got over it quickly, I am certain that David did not get over it. But the reason that David is able to continue on is because of what happens here. He says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. What is David saying here? We've hit this every single week. It's David's sneaky way of pointing us to his anchor, right? Last week after the sin, what was David's focus? It was Zion, right? The city of Zion, that heavenly city that we're all traveling to. His anchor was there. When David fought Goliath, what did he say? I don't come at you with a sword and a spear, but in the name of the Lord. Where was David's anchor? In the Lord. And now David is saying, Someday, I will see my son again. Someday, I will go to him. But he's not going to come back here. And why would David want him to? Come back, suffer through this life, or stay on God's holy mountain, worshiping and enjoying and living with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. David knew where his home was. So where is David's anchor? We knew where it was in his victory over Goliath. We knew where it was in his, after his sin with Bathsheba. It's a shame he wasn't as focused on that anchor before his sin with Bathsheba, or he wouldn't have sinned with Bathsheba. But where is his anchor now? And it's in the same place. We talked about this last week. 
David doesn't change. In victory, after sin, after loss, he doesn't change because his anchor is in the same spot every time. Why is David a man after God's own heart? Because his anchor never moves. And when it does, when David does slip, he knows where to put his anchor back, right? He knows that was a slip, that didn't do anything, and I'm putting my anchor right back where it should have been to begin with. His anchor isn't in this world. And this is why our current culture cannot handle loss. This is why our current culture is so bad at walking through pain and suffering. And this is why we have absolutely no idea how to walk with anyone else through it. Because the world continues. And guys, if you get anything from modern psychology that's not Christian psychology, teaching you to anchor outside of this world, every single piece of advice anchors you in this world. There's, I, I get on this all the time. There's a, a lady named Caroline Leaf, and I don't, I don't, this isn't against her. I don't, I don't have anything against her. But guys, the problem is so much of her advice is teaching Christians, because they call it Christian psychology, so much of her advice is teaching Christians to anchor in things of this world. When you're feeling bad about yourself, what should you do? Well, you should call five or six friends and have them tell you three good things about yourself. You're anchoring in your friend's opinion of you. What if I call my friend and my friend's having a crummy day? And, and my friend just unloads on me. What's that going to do to me? It's going to ruin me, right? But we keep teaching Christians to anchor in worldly things. Well, go back and remind yourself of all the success you have in your career if your marriage is falling apart. Cool, so now you're anchored in your career? That's a lot more stable. Or we could listen to the gospel. And when you're feeling down, you could anchor in the fact that you have a God and Savior who loves you so much that he gave his very life to save you. And that he has promised to walk with you through every possible event in your life. Does God promise that the storms aren't going to come? He absolutely does not promise that. Does he promise that you will never walk through fire? He does not. But he does promise that when you do, he will be with you, holding your hand the whole way. So, how do we move on after loss? We focus on our anchor and eternity in the presence of our Lord and Savior. Our God who grieves with us our God who weeps with us, our God who rejoices with us, our God who promises that even though there will be floods and fires, trials and tribulations, that he will be with us through them all. Today, if you are struggling to move onward from grief, grab his hand and walk with him. Tell him everything you're feeling. Guys, please don't pretend. God tells us in his word, Psalm 139 is a really good psalm, but he tells us that he knows every thought before we think it. We, he knows every word before it's even hit our tongue, right? Why are you going to sit here and pretend with God that you're not hurting through this situation? Tell him what you feel, because he knows anyway, right? Tell him. Don't pretend. Guys, 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 this is a really macho thing, right? Men don't cry. Real men, if you've got hair on your chest and, right, beards and stuff, we don't cry. It would ruin our flannels and dull our axes. Tell God how you feel. It doesn't mean you have to cry. But tell God how you feel. 
because he knows anyway. Don't pretend you don't grieve. But don't hold back. Let him have it. Jesus took on the cross. His shoulders are big enough to carry your grief. Lean into those loving arms of the God who weeps with you and let him comfort you. And for everyone else, even if you're not in a season of grief right now, do not forget that Jesus was a man of sorrow and familiar with grief, and he used that familiarity to comfort others. That means for you, Christian, do not waste your suffering. If you have walked through suffering, you have done it for a reason. And God wants you to use that experience to comfort others. Use it to help others who are walking through the same situation, through a similar situation. Gospel House, let's be a church that weeps with those who weep that rejoices with those who rejoice, that laughs and cries and embraces and comforts because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect, fill out the form, and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.